I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Isabella Hamad on her latest novel, Enter Ghost. Isabella Hamad is the author of The Parisian. She was awarded the Plimpton Prize for Fiction, the Sue Kaufman Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Palestine Book Award and a Betty Trask Award. She has received fellowships from McDowell, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Lanham Foundation. And she's just recently been one of Granter's 2023 list of best young British novelists. And today we're going to talk about Isabella's latest novel, which is Enter Ghost. Isabella, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us, first of all, then, how you would describe the novel. Um, well, the novel is basically about a production of Hamlet in Palestine. That's the, I guess, the <laughs> um, shortest version. It follows an actress named Sonia, who's the narrator, who goes to visit her sister Hanine in Haifa and gets drawn into, into the play. So tell us some more about Sonia, then. As you said, it's the first person narration. She's a narrator. Who is she? She's in her late 30s. Uh, she has a slightly fraught relationship with her sister. And she, I guess you could say she has some trouble in some of her personal relationships, which haven't gone so well. So she, when we meet her at the beginning of the book, she's quite disappointed. She feels disappointed with her career. She's not in a great place. And she's going to see her sister because she's hoping that her sister will take care of her, more or less. Throughout the book, there are a lot of motherhood is kind of a theme or the ghost of motherhood. Um, Sonia is not a mother. Um, Mariam, the director of the play, is a mother, very much a mother, and also kind of mothers her. So there's a sort of way in which they mother each other. And uh, she's looking for some of that mothering when she when she arrives to see her sister. And over the course of the play, she kind of changes. I know that it's, you know, maybe, uh, you know, to focus on character change as, a, as an arc of a narration is a little, maybe a little tired, but I really wanted to explore the ways in which this experience might alter Sonia and, and make her more open to the world. And indeed, Sonia and Hanin's mother is, although mentioned, is pretty much absent from the novel as well. Yes, very much so. I mean, there's a way in which, so the father um, is more, you know, has a history of being kind of politically involved in the Palestinian cause and then defects for obscure reasons or kind of withdraws. Uh, and the mother has a more strained relationship with, with Palestine and with being Palestinian. So there's a way in which the, each of the family members kind of models different ways of experiencing diaspora. So whereas Henin kind of comes back in a way and uh, Sonia sort of wants nothing to do with it um, and stays away. And there's an important moment in 
in the 90s, where a defining moment for the two sisters, where they both go to the West Bank at the end of the first intifada. And this, you know, catalyzes Henin's political commitment and sort of scares Sonia off. She says, I, I don't want anything to do with this place. So she's been away since then, since the early 90s, making a career for herself in in London. And she comes back to visit her sister and immediately right there in the airport is is brought really back down to the reality, isn't she? Yeah, with an interrogation scene, although it's a kind of a mild interrogation scene. You know, she's expecting something more hardcore and actually they kind of let her go. I think this is also sort of thing about ageing. They're, they're harder in the airport, I think, on, the, on younger people. And Sonia is also confronting the fact that she's getting older. Uh, so she presents less of a threat in a, in a way. I mean, they're still strip searcher, which is as bad as the um, airport customs has got recently. It's not something I've ever experienced myself. Yeah, it's sort of st- standard fodder for Palestinians, I'm afraid. So, Hanine, tell us a bit more about her. So you've already mentioned one of the reasons why she stayed, um, or she's made a... Both of them have not... They, they weren't born in um, Israel or Palestine. They have both come back at various times in, in their childhood. So let's talk about why her sister has come back a bit more. So her sister's teaching at an Israeli university, and I think she sees her role there, or she's seen her role there as, as being very important um, as somebody who's, um, you know, in, in education, who's uh, representing some, you know, kind of like a Palestinian experience within the Israeli state, that she has the passport. And over the course of the book, one, one thing that Hanin confronts is that she feels a little troubled about her position. The book is quite concerned with Palestinians with Israeli citizenship and the way in which they relate to Palestinians in the West Bank, <clears throat> as well as the diaspora, and the ways in which as a, the play itself is an opportunity for Palestinians of these different legal statuses and backgrounds to come together to make, a, to make an artwork. But Hanin, yeah, she's, I think there's a way in which Sonia's quite self-centered. She's not really thinking about the ways in which her sister might also be having a hard time or struggling or need comfort and support. So a lot of the kind of tensest scenes in the book are between the two sisters trying to communicate with one another, trying to negotiate their different, what they need from one another. Let's um, talk a bit more about that. So in the book, they're called the 48ers, the um, Palestinian people who have made a life for themselves within the borders of Israel after 1948, as opposed to Palestinians that live within the occupied territories in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. So what Just tell us what the status is of a person of Arab descent who lives in somewhere like Haifa. So within Israeli society, um, they have a lot of the privileges that having that passport confers on them, but they're still second class citizens. And the way in which that uh, occurs is because they don't join the army. And it's a sort of secret way in which they're discriminated against or kind of not kind of covert way in which they're discriminated against because Many of the it's harder to get loans. Sort of many of the the sort of social services are not as available to them if you're not if you don't join the army. Uh, and in other ways, because it's the uh, Israel is you know calls itself a Jewish but democratic, but they they don't they don't confer um, nationality onto those. Um, they have citizenship, but they don't have nationality. Their kind of nationality in the you know in the databases is described as as Arab or um, or according to their according to their religion. So there's this way in which they they are both. Privileged, and they were also discriminated against, and I think that produces quite interesting dynamics with regard to Palestinians elsewhere. And we see their grandparents' house, which has been relinquished by the family. Um, Sonia finds out quite upsettingly that this has happened, um, and so 
a lot of the book is concerned with her finding out secrets and identities of, of her family's past. So we don't want to go into too much detail of that and give anything away. But just tell us something about the status of her grandparents. Yeah, so whereas um, over 700, uh, kind of 750,000 Palestinians became refugees in 1948, some people stayed. They managed to stay or they... They, you know, didn't believe they were going to come back, or there were kind of different ways in which there were there was a population of Palestinians who then became part of the Israeli state. They got the citizenship in '48, even though they they then lived under military rule for 20 years, but they were still part of, you know, they they became citizens. So Sonia's family is is in that group, um, and uh, and the house is, is becomes very important in that way. It's a, it's a house that's staying in Palestinian hands in in Haifa. Um, but when Sonia arrives, she finds that the house has been sold, and this is a kind of betrayal and a big loss. Um, although at the beginning, when she finds out, she doesn't really feel it. It's a sort of important moment where they go and see it. She knows she's meant to feel really, really sad, and she feels kind of alienated and disconnected from it. Um, but it has a kind of symbolism. Uh, the houses and loss of houses, obviously, very important in Palestinian history. And you mentioned Mariam, who's a theatre director, a friend of Hanin's, who Sonia becomes introduced to. Tell us something more about who she is. Mariam is quite a kind of... Um, She's very charismatic. She's a little bit annoying and kind of um, presumptuous and forward in a way that rubs Sonia the wrong way. She's very close with Hanin, though. It rubs Sonia the wrong way, but she's also very attracted to her. She's attracted to, to Mariam's sense of mission and kind of certainty. So there's a, it's kind, Mariam is kind of the reason she gets involved in the play. She kind of wants to be in her orbit. So whereas she came looking for her sister to look after, she actually is, is drawn to this, to this other person, this other woman. Um, Marianne herself has a child. She's divorced, and uh, she's got her own, you know, things that she's dealing with. But she feels very um, idealistic, I think, about the role that theatre can play in resistance, which is almost an old-fashioned idea, you know. So she's kind of grappling with what it means to try and put on Hamlet, which is like a kind of elite, highbrow play. But she wants to get a big audience, so she casts a pop star who, who has no acting experience in the main role because. <laughs> because he's famous and he'll draw in the crowd. So she's kind of juggling these different things and she's trying to lead this, this motley cast um, where she's having struggle, uh, struggling to cast some of, the, some of the parts and so on and having sets dismantled by the army and so forth. So, so we're watching also Mariam as a leader. She's a, she's a woman leader, which is very emotional, but she's, um, but she's, kind, of, she's kind of leading our troops throughout the book. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Isabella Hamad and we're talking about her new novel, Enter Ghost. And we were just talking about Mariam, Isabella, and you introduced us to her theatre group and, and I want to stay with them for a bit. So introduce us to some more of the uh, of the characters within the theatre group. So we have Wa'el Huzazi, who's a, who's a pop star. He's um, also a cousin of Mariam's um, and uh, he's a refugee within the, in the West Bank. Um, who's who's shot to fame on a on a TV show about you know kind of singing a televised uh, song contest um, and he's very handsome and you know he'll, people are always running up and wanting his autograph and he's he's struggling to play Hamlet and Sonia feels kind of maternal towards him it's another example of a kind of mothering relationship um, we also have Ibrahim who is playing um, uh, he is playing. Oh my god, I've forgotten. He's playing Laertes, I think. Um, and uh, he is—he's kind of Sonia's love interest. There's sort of a push and pull love interest there. She's she's not sure how how interested she is in him, but he's you know he's nice, I think, compared to some of the other people she's she's been dating. Um, we have Ferris, who is the eldest member of the cast, who kind of remembers the the the, the high watermark of Palestinian theatre in the 70s and 80s. Um, and we have Majid, who is uh, from Jerusalem, playing. Uh, oh my God, I've forgotten. Sorry, I've forgotten the name of the, What's the name of Hamlet, Hamlet's uncle? Claudius. Uh, Claudius. Claudius. <laughs> <laughs> playing Claudius. The, 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 the main antagonist. Yes, the main antagonist, <laughs> the uncle. Um, but anyway, so we there, and then there's a there's we finally get a woman playing uh, playing Ophelia, um, in a ad- late addition to the cast. At the beginning, Sonia's playing Gertrude and Ophelia, and then she just plays Gertrude. It's sort of again a kind of thing about growing older. She's no longer the the ingenue. Um, and also they were, you know, kind of a bit strange to play both Gertrude and Ophelia. But, you know, Wael and Ibrahim are kind of the most prominent of the rest of the cast uh, in terms of Sonia's interactions with them. But the but the book goes into play form when they rehearse. So you kind of have these this banter among the cast where they debate interpretations of the play and they and they discuss things about about putting on the play. And that goes into play form. So you have a kind of you have lots of voices, although some of them are obviously more significant to the narrative than others. Naturally. Yeah, I wanted to talk about why you made the decision to do it in that format, because it's really interesting. I mean, I did it in part because I just wanted to play with the metaphor of theatre in every follow every avenue that I could play around with it. Um, and so it seemed obvious to me that I would at some point experiment with that. Um, and then it became useful for when you have a when you have a book that's in the first person. Actually, it's really nice to have an opportunity to step outside that narrative voice 
So it allows Sonia to kind of just recede as one of the cast. And it also allows me in a way to get a lot of voices in the room without having the kind of to be bogged down with with the stage directions, as it were, that you have in in kind of a, a prose dialogue. Um, so it was fun in that way. And it also gets to it gets to tap into all sorts of other kind of uh, metaphorical things. You know, a play script is both a record of, but it's also a uh, an instruction of something yet to come. And I guess I wanted to also imply that a little bit, that this is also a play that might be followed, you know, for that also to be a resonance there or a possibility. You mentioned that, that one of the cast is a veteran of the, the Palestinian theatre scene from better times. And I wanted to talk about the theatre group is obviously like based on real examples of theatre groups that obviously on the one hand just want to keep alive the um, the idea of theatre within an occupied country, but at the same time are doing explicitly political things. Or you know, it's, it's a form of using theatre as a as a form of protest and a form of um, resistance. So um, tell us about some of the the real things that this is sort of influenced by. Yeah, so the 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 kind of high watermark that I referred to, it is so the occupation of the uh, of the West Bank and Gaza and of East Jerusalem began in 1967. So it is after that time, but it's at it's before the first intifada and the second intifada and before Oslo, the Oslo accords. So uh in that period theater was kind of you also have to think it's like it's Think about the 60s and 70s elsewhere in the world where there's kind of agitprop theatre um, or, you know, May 68 in France. The sort of that it's almost part of a larger global zeitgeist of uh, experimental and politically committed theatre. Um, and there were a few major characters in that scene and particular theatre groups. There was there was one called Bellaline, um, which was headed by someone called François Abusalem, who had actually been in France and he'd um, he'd been he'd studied with Ariane Mnouchkin and the Théâtre du Soleil, and and there were other, there were others as well. And they were also some of them involved in the visual arts. But there was a kind of my senses from speaking to people from that period and obviously from reading about it. There was a kind of flourishing of um, politically committed art, and theatre was a big part of that. So uh, and then later, the later period, there's a there's a and in fact, this is one of the inspirate or one of the yeah, I suppose, inspirations for the book um, was the history of the Freedom Theatre in Janine Refugee Camp, um, which which grew out of a of a school for a theatre school for children called um, the Stone Theatre. And they have also a kind of pretty extraordinary history. Um, and they still see, you know, uh, their theatrical production as as part of a general uh, cultural form of resistance. And so I think those histories are really interesting. And I wanted to tap into them without kind of being an, uh, uh, you know, an overview of that history. But they, they were also sort of sources and resonances that I was playing with. What sort of challenges does a theatre group face both in the book and in real life, obviously, because one reflects the other. But if one was putting on a production in under, you know, an occupying government, what sort of hurdles does one face? Well, there are a few. One is uh, mobility, so movement. So if the actors are from all over the place, there are, and some of them are from the West Bank, you have limited places where they can put on the play because not everybody has the same level of freedom of movement. They need to apply for permits and so forth. So that's one thing. Another thing is funding. I, I I made the funding kind of part of the plot in a way. So there's a there's a pressure on the funding because Mariam wants it to be a big spectacle, which means that she needs a lot of money and she also wants to pay well, you know, a good salary as somebody who's got a lot of fame. Um, and uh, she is she gets her brother on board, but her brother is a member of the Knesset, so he's within the Israeli Parliament, and this produces problems. This attracts the eye of the Israeli authorities. 
and a suspicion of collaboration uh, with the enemy of the Israeli state. So there's sort of this sort of uh, kind of brought in that the possibility of that kind of intrigue and that kind of pressure on the production. And then obviously other things happen, like the, the set gets dismantled by the army, all these other things. They have to kind of find a place to put it on. Um, of course, this is, you know, um, uh, pl- plenty of plays do get put on in Palestine, in the, in the West Bank and in Jerusalem and so forth that don't that don't confront such obstacles, although they have they have more in the past. So there were plays in the 70s and 80s that um, had to go through the military censor. I mean, they, they all had to go through the military censor. Um, and some of them were stopped, you know, if they went off script uh, by the army and so forth. So there is also a kind of history of of maybe volatility or a sense that theatre could be um, could be a subversive art form uh, because you can go off script because you've got a crowd in a room. Um, there are ways in which if you're if you're occupying a people, that can you can sort of see why that would be alarming to the authorities. And one more thing: Why did you choose Hamlet? Um, good question. I mean, I at first I thought maybe I'll write a play. I thought I could use an Arabic play, and I came to Shakespeare because I thought that everybody will have a kind of rudimentary, even basic understanding of. Um, of Shakespeare. And I initially thought Macbeth, I could do some kind of, I could Palestinianize Macbeth. And then I found out that Hamlet was banned in the prisons during the, uh, during the Intifada because, because of the to be or not to be speech. I thought that was very interesting. And then I found out that it had this whole other history, particularly in Egypt during the period of, um, of Nasser. So there were other, you know, the thing about Shakespeare is it's very English, British, but at the same time, kind of global, you have these other traditions, you have like a Soviet tradition and, uh, Shakespeare's plays are kind of transferable in this way. And then, you know, not everybody needs to know Hamlet. You kind of, you just know to be or not to be, you know, there's a ghost, you know, something about revenge. I can also play with the presence of, of those diluted tropes and also with, with the possibility that in a way, Hamlet has kind of become cliche. And I can also play with that, that availability of those cliches by, by putting it into a different context, by translating it back from the Arabic translation stuff. It gave me, it gave me freedom to play. And so to finish this off, can I get you to read us a bit? Of course. I'll read from the beginning. I expected them to interrogate me at the airport, and they did. What surprised me was that they didn't take very long. A young blonde female officer, and then an older dark-haired one, took turns in a private room to ask me about my life. They particularly wanted to know about my family links to the place, and I repeated four times that my sister lived here, but that I personally hadn't returned in eleven years. Why? they kept asking. I had no explanation. At points, the exchange seemed to come bizarrely close to them insisting on my civic rights. Of course, they were only trying to unnerve me. Why does your sister have citizenship and you don't? Right place, right time, I shrugged. I didn't want to bring up my mother. They unzipped my bags, investigated my belongings, opened every play, flipped through my appointment diary with its blank summer months and the two novels, one of which I'd finished on the plane then led me into a different room for a strip search. Surely this isn't necessary, I said in a haughty voice, while a third woman officer ran her detector over my bare flesh, as though I might have hidden something under my skin, and dawdled over the straps of my bra and knickers, which I had matched in preparation, blue lace. And as she knelt before my crotch, the laughter began to quiver in my stomach. I put my clothes back on, surprised by how hard I was shaking, and ten minutes later they called me to a booth, where a tall man I hadn't seen before gave me my passport and told me I was free to enter, welcome to Israel. I passed a seating area and recognised two glum-looking Arab men and a young Western woman in red lipstick from my flight, still waiting to be questioned. Their eyes followed me to the automatic doors. 
and as the doors sighed apart, I checked the time on my phone and saw only an hour had passed. This left me two more to kill, since my sister Hanine wouldn't be back in Haifa until half past six. I made a snap decision and asked a taxi driver to take me to Akka. I had an idea I should see something beautiful first. My adrenaline faded slowly in the car. As it did, the shadow of my bad winter returned, and I watched the passing farmland, the hills of the Galilee, through its darkness. My whole life I'd been aware of Hanine's stronger moral compass. It made me afraid to confide in her until the very last moment, until I absolutely needed to. I also wanted to resist her, the way a child resists a parent and at the same time absorbs their wisdom. I wanted to sulk in her second bedroom and feel better with the secret muffled gladness that someone was holding me to account. I may not have locked eyes with this fact yet, but I wasn't only here for Hanin. After an hour and a half, signs appeared for Akka, and my blood thumped a little harder. And then we turned off the motorway and drew up by the arches of the old city. I paid the driver and wheeled my suitcase down an alley. And when I saw the blue sky burning above the sea wall, I stopped. I stared at the ancient stonework, at the dazzling water. I hadn't prepared myself for this bodily impact, the memory of my senses. A few red chairs and tables were arranged beside the pier. I approached the wall, leaned my bag against it, and stayed there a moment. The sun heated my face, my hands, my armpits began to sweat. I reached for the top of the wall and pulled myself up onto it. Some forty feet below me the water crashed against the parapet, foaming and jolting back. Where the wall curved on my right, a group of boys stood in a line. All elbows, hands on hips, shifting their weight from leg to leg, watching each other waiting. Two were small and skinny, barefoot, with brown, sunlit shoulder blades. Most of the older ones wore sneakers that left dark marks on the stone, and necklaces of drops fell from the seams of their shorts. The first in line took a running start and leapt, knees up. He seemed to fall for a long time, his body unfolding. Then he cracked the water and disappeared. When his head bobbed up again, the other boys didn't react. I guess I was expecting them to applaud or something. The diver flicked his hair and swam for the rocks. I had a vision of my own body flipping down from the boundary. My thin cotton trousers ballooning, stiffening on the air like sails, receding as my figure plunged to the water. I both saw and could feel the wall scraping my forearms through my shirt. Legs parting, one hand reaching out, smashed in an instant and bloody on the rock. The boys gathered closer together and were talking, eyeing me where I sat. Down below, the water drank the stones, leaving black circles dilating on their surfaces. In the distance, tank boats cut through the waves. The sea noise calmed me. After a while, I jumped back onto the ground and dragged my bag away to hail another taxi. Could you take me to Haifa, please? I asked in English for some reason. Maybe because I couldn't be sure he was Palestinian, not even in old Akka, or maybe because only two hours ago I'd been emphasising my Englishness in the hopes of smoothing my passage between the border police. The car was stuffy with the old day's heat. The radio was playing an Arabic song. A string of cowrie shells hung from the rearview mirror. Wa al-Hijazi, you know him? said the driver. No, is he famous? The driver laughed. He sang along for a bit. So I've been talking to Isabella Hamad. We've been talking about her new novel, Enter Ghost, which is out in the UK now from Jonathan Cape. Isabella, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thanks so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. 
The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.